so um, the, uh, we've uh, we've sort of seen there the, um, the the development the challenge of humanistic philosophy from the medieval period then on into the humanistic philosophy of nominalism and uh, Hobbes and Kant and so forth. Now. Um, in a certain sense, we've we we there we we leapt over um, uh, a point that came that's important for the Reformational tradition, that was resisting something of this humanistic turn with the Renaissance, and then of course later with the so-called Enlightenment, and that was the Reformation itself, and the uh, Reformational philosophy, as you've said originally, uh, called itself a Calvinistic. Uh, philosophy, which you can comment on in a, mo in a moment. Um, but uh, say something then about what happened uh, with the Reformation. And I think um, clearly both Luther and Calvin were still operating to some degree inescapably within this context of the Corpus Christianum and uh, they're coming out of this world of this synthesis, but they're trying to, especially Calvin, shake free uh, from some of its assumptions. So tell us something about what did and what didn't happen with uh, the Reformation in terms of um, uh, philosophy? Uh, you know, is it that Calvin is just gloriously inconsistent with some of the philosophical assumptions that were, were present? And he, uh, which dots did uh, he connect? What, what was the breakthrough of the Reformation that would allow people later on that we're gonna talk about like Kuiper and uh, Doerverd and others to um, to root themselves in the Calvinistic philosophy. Mm -hmm. Well, let us first of all look just for a moment at uh, the position of Martin Luther. As you know, he himself said he is from Occam-Schule. That's right. A nominalist. And in his thought, you find the dualism between nature and grace talk pretty much strong. It eventually developed into a position where you opposed a law and uh, uh, the gospel and grace, yeah. Uh, and it is to such an extent a consistent dualism that Luther uh, gave the obligation to earn tax to the, to the state. And in Germany, you are still paying tax to the state in support of, of the church. church. Okay. So they have a, a Staatskirchenrecht, a state church law that mm -hmm. made the private legal position of the church actually into a public legal one. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is a tra tragic situation that that happened because it influenced uh, also the way in which uh, Luther himself interpreted uh, confessions. My father used to say to me that if you look at the, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, you will find there's an element of a Roman Catholic attitude, starting with a question, how can I get salvation? Mm -hmm. In the case of the Belgian Confession, Calvin had a different attitude. He had the attitude of, while being thankful for the grace that I've received through Christ in God, how can I now turn around and serve God? Mm -hmm. Not how can I become <laughs> saved, mm -hmm. because that was done by Christ anyway. But that there's an element in it that tells the difference between the two. But unfortunately, Calvin himself was still caught up in, in the medieval legacy and the ancient Greek one in some respects. He didn't come to terms with the substance concept. 
uh, say something a bit about that uh, again, just to clarify the substance concept. What did Calvin not come to terms with there? Define the substance concept again for us. Yeah, the substance concept uh, gave birth to a distinction between essence and appearance. Mm -hmm. And God was designated as a, a person, a personal God, elevated in its highness above what we can conceive. That's fine, that's biblical. But in its, I say it does, it transcends whatever we can say about him. And he had to struggle with this issue for a while. But when it came to the relationship between God and creation, he was fairly on a fairly good path because he said that although God is elevated above his law for the creatures, he is not himself arbitrary. Mm -hmm. So that Deus legibus solutus est, said non ex lex, uh, was the slogan which had some links uh, with other roots as well because in the case of uh, Occam, uh, it was taken into a ad absurdum in, in a certain sense, namely in the sense that uh, God had the power to be despotic and arbitrary mm -hmm. in his actions. He could have sent uh, Christ to the earth in the form of a stone or an ass mm -hmm. or a donkey. Mm -hmm. Things like that you will find. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, but. Uh, that comes from, from Luther, sorry. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, Calvin himself had also a serious difficulty with the body-soul issue. Mm -hmm. he, was, he inherited the Roman Catholic dualism and he did not succeed in overcoming it. So there are of two substances there, of a body substance, soul substance. That's right. yeah. And depreciating yeah. the body substance, mm -hmm. the material body. Yeah. yeah. You find it at various places in his institutes. So, uh, the interesting thing is also that Calvin did not inspire anyone to come up with a radical Christian philosophy. There are certain starting points in his thinking. He acknowledges God's sovereignty, he acknowledges God's law set for creation and so on. So those things gave the possible starting points for and uh, and very famously in book one there that knowledge of self is predicated in knowledge of God and so forth. Uh, it's uh, dependent upon. Yeah. Yeah, so those things were there, but unfortunately it was able uh, to note that what happened with the Reformation was something that struck Abraham Kuyper, and he realized that the Reformation was not merely a matter of uh, religious faith and the church as an institution, because it touched the heart, the root of human being, the human being, and in doing that, it uh, calls us for living out mm -hmm. truth commitment in all areas of life, not just within the domain of faith. Let's talk about let's talk about that for a moment then, and, and the connection there with um, with Calvin, because one of the things that. Um, came out of the, uh, the reform side there, of, of the Calvinistic side of the Reformation. As you said, the sovereignty of God, um, knowledge of God, knowledge of self, and so forth. Um, the importance and authority of scripture. Uh, 
but also a recognition that all of the vocations, some would say that the priesthood of all believers, that a breaking down of the radical duality between the clerical, the clerisy, and the, the uh, laity, and the sense that we are all servants of God, we're all Christ diaconate, we are all, we're all priests unto God. That was something that came out of the Calvinistic side of the, of the Reformation. And at least then, as we, as we see in the Reformed countries in Western Europe, um, the way in which it began to affect political life, educational life. Not in, not in a self-consistent way, as you said, but it began to start to have an effect, a very, a very clear effect. Um, but it wasn't really until um, uh, somebody like Groen van Prinsterer mm -hmm. and then Abraham Kuyper uh, that we really see it to start to specifically affect um, these f philosophical underpinnings. So even as, as, um, as somebody who's got Dutch parentage, but was was on my father's side, but raised in England. Um, one of the things that uh, that undermined the English Puritans in the end was the Cambridge Platonism, because that 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 philosophical legacy that was still under, even though they were struggling to get theologically, socially, politically free from it, they found that it was it was still there and it was undermining them. So. You mentioned there the, what happened with, and it's very moving actually hearing Doyavird's um, interview where he speaks about his own reading of Abraham Kuyper's meditations on the work of the Holy Spirit. And this insight that he saw in Kuyper about the human heart. So why don't you say something about that, the, the, the heart? and then about Kuiper himself as sort of this, uh, and perhaps Van Prinsterer, as this sort of beginnings of the reformational tradition and philosophy. So the heart first, and then the Kuiper and the beginnings of this tradition, just so that we have the, that sense of chronology for our viewers. Okay. Now, let me first of all just remind you about something else in Calvin. In, during the medieval period, the economic life was uh, restricted by the so-called interest ban. You're not allowed yeah. to, to lend someone some money and then take interest when he pays back. Mm -hmm. And Calvin was the only reformator who opposed that, and he said, no, let go. Let me explore that this is also part of God's kingdom, and mm -hmm. we should restore economic life and uh, help that sphere of life to serve God just as we should in all other areas. Mm -hmm. So that life-encompassing perspective of Calvin was very important, and it helped liberating economic life from the restrictions of those interest bans. Yeah. Of the interest ban, and so uh, that gave birth to a lot of new developments within the economic sphere. Mm -hmm. But the misinterpretation that we have in this regard from Werner Sombart and Max Weber, namely that uh, it is capitalism that is responsible for the rise of capitalism, is not mm -hmm. totally correct. And Max Weber himself, in his Protestant ethic, points out that uh, the Calvinistic orientation is older than the rise of capitalism, mm -hmm. but that forms of uh, organization of the business firm that was also not an effect or didn't come uh, resulted in a uh, sort of capitalistic practice. Mm -hmm. So that is something interesting to, to know and to keep in mind. But then, if you look at paper himself, uh, his first struggle was with church and state. When he established uh, the Free University of Amsterdam, and he gave in 1880s inaugural lecture on the theme uh, sphere sovereignty. 
His claim was that the university as an independent societal institution should be free from interference either by the state or the church. Mm-hmm. That's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. So he didn't want to have the church controlling life like it did in the Roman Catholic ecclesiastical unified culture mm-hmm. of the past. And what we would appreciate from Kuiper is indeed that he rediscovered the central position and the integral meaning of the heart as the religious root of the human being. And he always related it to the new humanity in Christ, opposed to the old humanity in Adam. Mm-hmm. So we rooted that in a fundamental biblical perspective. Uh, but of course, uh, it also includes the individual person and the acknowledgement that whatever is ultimately driving the human individual uh, from its ultimate commitment, which is rooted in the heart, will give direction to all of life. And that was what according to Dwayvet, uh, was the motivation of Kuiper, who realized that the religious root of the Reformation touches the heart and therefore cannot be restricted to church and faith alone. It should in, uh, include all of life in all these different manifestations. Unfortunately, also with Kuiper, or within Kuiper, there is still ambiguities. Mm-hmm. On one hand, he had the Logos speculation, which is going back to the classical issue of uh, the as of God and the essence, essence appearance distinction. Uh, Say a little bit more about that and the, and the Logos concept, the, the essence appearance. Is that the notion essentially that God in himself is completely unknown, but he's appeared in a certain way to us via revelation, but we can't really know what he is in himself? That's right. And how does the Logos concept relate to that? Uh, that is part of the story. They initially, even both David and Fallen struggled with the Logos as an aspect of human nature or of creation. And some of the students of that era speculated about these aspects belonging inherently to God. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, the substance concept had this difficult element, as you correctly pointed out, that uh, what is simply a natural distinction between a thing and the way in, its, in which it appears was elevated to become the scheme in terms of which was uh, th- uh, the theologians thought about uh, God which in his Asaitas is so elevated that we cannot know him, and he has therefore uh, incommunicable and communicable properties. Mm-hmm. And uh, the trouble was that if you have ele- an element within God which is hidden, which is not revealed, God becomes what is known as a Deus absconditus, a mm-hmm. hidden God. Mm-hmm. And uh, the moment he is hidden, you ask yourself, now whatever is revealed, is that really God? Or is there behind what is revealed still something left, mm. which we don't know and which is not revealed? And, and could what has been revealed be arbitrary, as, 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 as William of Ockham was asking? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you have all those problems uh, eventually emerging. And uh, the solution is pretty easy if you just take the biblical terms on what they say. If God is love, if God is uh, uh, life, if God is almighty, then in his love and in his mightiness and in his uh, living or in his being God as life, we can understand and know God but cannot embrace or, or encompass him in a concept. We can approach him in a 
or a concept transcending idea, but he is all the way what he says he is. If he says, I am love, then there's not behind that love something else. The only thing is that we cannot comprehend this love fully. sufficiently. Yeah. Or fully, mm. because it's transcending, and that's why I prefer to use the expression concept transcending knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the Bible has positive exp explanations or references to God, and that's not problematic at all. Mm. So uh, the substance concepts. Uh, and is that behind, is that distinction behind some of the sort of uh, the via negativa? Uh, the way people want to define God always in the negative. He's yeah. not this, he's not that, he's not, he's not finite, he's etc, 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 rather than positively. Precisely. Uh, you see, I stopped when I earlier referred to the dialogue Parmenides of Plato, but that's the starting point for the negative theology. The thesis was in that dialogue uh, that God is one without any multiplicity. So Plato started to argue then, suppose now we try to say something positive about the one, the hen. Mm -hmm. Then the, what you are trying to say would be, for example, that it is a whole. But what is a whole? A whole is something containing all its parts. But if all the parts are there, there's a multiplicity of parts. And so there's multiplicity in the one that is without multiplicity. Mm -hmm. And so whatever he did, when it is, whether it's moving and all the other positive affirmations he experimented with, he ended up by having a multiplicity at the end instead of the multiplicity. The pure unity. The pure unity of the one, the mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that gave the starting point by Plotinus. And it's yeah. actually so important, this line, that is mostly neglected, but there's in Germany a guy by the name of, name of Klaus Kremer, who did this Habilitationsschrift, that's an encompassing piece of work, on uh, the Neuplatonic philosophy of being and its influence upon Thomas Aquinas. Mm -hmm. So it's more important than people used to think, and there's a whole school in the German scholarship that explored that line of thought more extensively. And the case of Avram Kuyper, uh, you had that, and eventually David couldn't resist, he had to write in 1939 an article on Kuyper's philosophy of science, and there he deals with his Logos concept and some of the uh, remnants of the scholastic tradition, mm -hmm. uh, which is a very important part of the read. It was taken up in a volume published by Dort Press, uh, and it's easy to be found. But uh, the negative side of the story is that Abram Kuyper still had elements of the Aristotelian to mystic view of society. And he saw the state as an ethical organism. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And in the state, you only have the right to vote for the head of the family. That's the nucleus of the germ cell, because the family is the germ cell of society mm -hmm. and of the state. And uh, the interesting thing is, I remember that in my student days in 1969, one of the theologians who turned into a politician was uh, Trernet, Andris Trernet. And he was at a certain stage the editor of a newspaper and he discussed a tax issue in France. And the issue was whether or not uh, parents with children that are earning money but still living at house, whether or not the dad should pay tax for them or they should pay for themselves. Uh -huh. And he decided that the dad should, the dad should pay for them, organic 
tax tax paying just like the organic right devotee had for the head of the family. Uh-huh. And interestingly, John Rawls in his uh, theory of justice, he also had initially just the, the heads of families coming together to reach an agreement. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So very mighty influence we have from Aristotle onwards. So that was in, uh, con- in conflict with his whole idea of sphere sovereignty and he didn't have a proper, proper understanding of the state and so on. So that was a deadline. Dweber didn't pursue that. Uh-huh. And uh, he went the other way because Kuiper very uh, explicitly affirmed that the term law should not be restricted to the ceremonies and the Ten Commandments because you should contemplate all the ordinances of God for all of creation. Okay, so we can. Um, that's uh, an interesting point that we should come back to at some point, and that's um, uh, Doyverd's idea of uh, of law. But for now, um, the uh, where where we've sort of the journey we've come on now, we've reached Kuiper and some of the breakthrough that he had with the idea of sphere sovereignty and the notion of family, church, and state, and university and institutions being. Uh, sovereign in their own sphere um, and having that independence um, even though they're they're related but nonetheless independent uh, within within society um, in the with the backdrop of uh, of the reformation and uh, some of kuiper's breakthrough the recognition of the, the place of the, of the heart as opposed to reason or man's reason being the uh, the center of his uh, his uh, existence the heart being the, the the root of the human person uh, th- there is a very distinct now change, or there's a distinct, um, there's a distinctive transition which gives us, in in that sense, this tradition that comes with with Doyverd and Vollenhoven with respect to philosophy itself. You've said that uh, in some areas Kuiper breaks with the old Aristotelian Thomistic tradition, in other, other areas he's still uh, wrestling with it. And it's very interesting when Doyverd talks about his own reading of Kuiper how. Uh, he found some of his more theoretical, theological work rationalistic or quite rationalistic, but then in these meditations on the Holy Spirit, he felt a completely different sense and spirit when reading them. So we sort of come now to the sort of rub, which will probably bring us to the conclusion of this segment, which is uh, uh, Doiverd and his brother-in-law, uh, Vollenhoven, and um, uh, and then you maybe can say something about some of the other key figures that surrounded them, but um, uh, without getting into the details at this point, because we need to save that for some other segments of the the, the details of the philosophy that they outlined. Just give us uh, one or two of the the root, the key. Um, uh, the key things that uh, that they had to say about uh, both the importance of a Christian, of a distinctly Christian philosophy, and where the key changes foundationally needed to be made uh, in um, a Christian uh, philosophy. What was it fundamentally uh, that they were saying to 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 to, to lead you very slightly? Uh, uh, with this sort of the idea of a of um of an ontology an understanding of being that was was not reductionistic T- tell us about just a couple of things about the foundation of their thought and then we'll come to a few more personal anecdotes about uh Doiver and Vollenhoven th- themselves what 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 is it fundamentally that they broke with when they said no a christian philosophy not this synthetic version that comes out of greek thought yeah, that's right. Well, 
traditionally the human being was understood in terms of one or more than one function of being human. Mm-hmm. So the most general and classical designation we have is that the human being is a rational, ethical being. Mm-hmm. So you lifted out two aspects and uh, you built into them a little bit more than that. So it was more than just two aspects, but nonetheless, it was a combination of various aspects. Uh, that served the, the, the role of the counterpole of what they always accepted as the other side of the coin, the material basis, the material body, or whatever it was. There was always a split and a dualism between body and soul. So you had the material body and then this rational, ethical being inside this material body. That's right, and you have, uh, as part of the story, the interference now of the humanistic basic motive of nature and freedom. Mm-hmm. So freedom became, it fulfilled the role of the soul in the traditional approach, but at the same time it was set off against causality. And that was the challenge which Kant faced. If everything is ruled by the law of cause and effect, freedom would be outruled. Mm-hmm. And that's why he explored the essence-appearance distinction by saying the essence is the thing in itself, the ding an sich, mm-hmm. and the appearance or the appearances are those which we have to uh, use to restrict understanding. Otherwise, understanding will expand the law of causality over the domain of practical ethical human freedom, and that's going to destroy people's freedom. To the natural science ideal once again. Mm-hmm. So the initial phase of humanism was in the grip of the natural science ideal, but freedom was conceived when it reached Kant as uh, the, that pole which transcends the realm of appearances, which was ruled by causality, the law of causality. So it was sort of, you're saying that that, that realm of freedom was pushed up into a, uh, a spiritual faith. Uh, yeah, you assume now the, the primacy, just as in Greek thought, the form motive or the matter motive assumed the primacy. Mm-hmm. So initially the primacy was given to the nature pole, and they had uh, the lex continui of lifeness and its monads, or then you have uh, Hobbes with his moving body, where they cut with his race extensa and his race coquitans, the extended and the thinking substance. And so you had elements from nature, even the psychologistic developments by uh, Barclay Hume and, uh, and Locke even, they uh, never succeeded in exceeding the nature sides of being human. To hate, to think, to love, to think, to, to feel, to see. All this is nothing but to perceive, Hume says. Mm-hmm. So everything was reduced by the empiricists to... So all these are all just sensations. Sensations, yeah. And that's where the classical proof of Barclay comes from for God. Esse is percipi, to be is to be perceived. And if God doesn't look at us, we, we don't exist. Mm-hmm. So there must be always perceiving God, otherwise nothing can exist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was the, the story of his proof of God. But nevertheless, the point is that within the dialectic of nature and freedom, they never succeeded in coming to a solution because as long as you set freedom off against nature or nature causality, natural causality, then you will never be able to guarantee any freedom. And eventually it was Karl Jaspers, one of the existentialist philosophers, who in one of his uh, extensive books concluded in the, in the end by saying, Uh, Freedom as such must fail because it's always through and against nature. Mm -hmm. So what was 
Kant's failed attempt to overcome this, he puts this sort of uh, uh, moral, ethical aspect of the human person and gives us that categorical imperative that, and, and so he, uh, he recognizes the, the, the material nature element of man's being, obviously, um, uh, in terms of the appearance. How does, how does, how did, because uh, we know that Doivred in some respects is responding to Kant, but how does Doivred attempt to preserve freedom? Yeah, that's how does, question. yeah. Of course, in Kant it's, it's very simple because he accepted eventually, just as in Greek philosophy, he had two principles of origin. Kant had two lawgivers, reason, theoretical reason, which was the a priori formal lawgiver of nature, mm-hmm. and you have practical reason, which is the lawgiver of the supranatural sphere of ethical freedom, where, where the human being acts as an aim within itself, a Selbstzweck, is the German expression. So, David realized that as long as he is going to uh, remain true to this dualism of nature and freedom, he will never be able to understand uh, freedom properly. And that is done by him by making an appeal to the basic perspective of creation, fall, and redemption. Uh-huh. If there are creational possibilities that are normative or norming in nature, then we can either obey or disobey them. But we don't have to be liberated from them in order to be free. Right. So that totally changed the whole ball game entirely. Mm-hmm. I've wrote two articles on normativity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Those two have exp- I've, I've explained all these issues. But nevertheless, it's a... Uh, so man can, in the normative aspects of reality, he's, I mean, you know, just to, just to land the plane for people on this point, you know, we are not free not we're not free to disobey the biological laws that that pertain to our bodies, but we are free to disobey moral norms, for example, that are given to us by God. Yeah, and you could expand, because uh, there are logical norms, there are cultural historical principles, there are lingual principles, Uh and within each dimension of life, which is uniquely and distinctly human, you find that you can either obey or disobey, and it's it's very easily detectable because it's manifest in the contraries we experience in our everyday life, logical and illogical. Uh A square circle is the example I always use, but Uh it comes from Kant. Uh, historical, unhistorical, reaction, revolution versus reformation would be the God-directed obedience. Uh-huh. Uh, then you have uh, clear and confused, the lingual. Uh-huh. Then you have uh, polite and impolite, the social. Uh-huh. Then you have frugal and wasteful, legal and illegal, moral and immoral, and trusting and in doubt. So within all aspects that are distinctly human, you find this possibility. And owing to the fall into sin, we are all tempted to be disobedient. And that's also the mystery of the sin, that this possibility became an actuality. Uh But in principle, we are saved again by Christ to be obedient. And that's why we move towards all the domains within creation and within those domains, try to seek God's will and be obedient to it. Uh So um, in the first instance, then, 
uh, what Doyerverd and and uh, and, and were were recognising was that you you said that um, the human person cannot be reduced to one of these aspects. Precisely. That that trying to define the human person in terms of this uh, this embodied rational soul, uh, moral uh, rational being yeah. embodied or entombed, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, this is inadequate as a as a definition uh, as, as as finding the root of the human person. So that was yeah. the fundamentally. What else was there that you might add to that? So that 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 recognition that, uh, about the human person, the self, the selfhood, the I. What else? What would be perhaps one other fundamental yeah, principle? In his introduction to his uh, three-volume work of 36, 35, 36, and in the English translation that appeared in 53, 58, uh, the thing that he mentions himself is that he was struck by the fact that the prominent systems of philosophy or schools of thought in philosophy and history, like Leibniz and names a few, uh, they all started with an idea of a cosmic world order, or a cosmic plan, or a cosmic structure or system, or whatever. And he was so impressed by that that he said, this is unique to each philosophical system, its own idea of law, of order, mm -hmm. of uh, the system, the way the world is, is running. Mm -hmm. And that's why he decided to call his philosophy, the, or his approaching philosophy, philosophy of the law idea. Mm -hmm. Because always you find that uh, somewhere. And in, the, in his ripened conception, he distinguished three transcendental ideas of God, of the meaning totality of reality and the cosmic diversity. And if you combine those three, you have the transcendental ground idea, which is in the grip of an ultimate commitment. Mm -hmm. uh, could be the four matter motive, it could be the nature grace motive, it could be the biblical motive of creation, fall and redemption, or it could be the humanistic motive of nature and freedom. But you cannot escape from one or another ultimate commitment. And that was very important. So I would combine the two, the law idea and the insight that there is a, a driving force, a dynamics coming from the root, mm -hmm. which is the heart that cannot be identified with any aspect of being human. Which is perhaps why then uh, there was they toyed with the notion of the, the or, or there was some discussion about calling it the creation idea, because it had to do with the, the the philosophy of the creation idea, because it had to do with this fundamental issue of how the the world is governed, uh, how God's word, how God's law governs the cosmos, governs reality. But they felt in the end that the law idea expressed better what they were trying to say about about the nature and character of creation. Yeah, you're right. The person who uh, attempted to speculate, <laughs> not really speculate, but to come up with an alternative was Hendrik Stoker, a South African philosopher. He studied with Max Schiller and he published his PhD on human conscience, Tuskewissen. And uh, even Heidegger took notice of the book. It was quite an important book in the 20s, almost 100 years ago. Not long ago, uh, the guy who translated it asked me to write a foreword. And it's a fantastic book to read. But eventually he suggested that we should speak about the philosophy of the creation idea. I think we ever said, but not all people accept an idea of creation, but all have an idea of law. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, you have a better <laughs> uh, hope to cover more mm -hmm. if you use the idea of, of the law giver and the law idea. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, interestingly, Stoker 
distinguish between a special science, which is interested in what is particular to a specific area in creation, philosophy, which is interested in the totality of creation, and theology, who views the former two in respect to day, in relation to God. Mm -hmm. It's the same definition of theology that comes through in his thought as well. Mm -hmm. And so he, were, he was also in some respect uh, a mixed person. He didn't succeed sufficiently to liberate himself from the scholastic and the reform scholastic tradition. We didn't say too much about that. No. We can, come, we can come back to that. But let's wrap up this segment that, then by just saying um, uh, uh, something about um, Doiverd and Vollenhoven more personally. Okay. So Doiverd um, is uh, an early 20th century uh, figure or mid 20th century figure. What year is Doiverd born? He was born in 1894, mm -hmm. passed away in 1977, and uh, you must remember that he grew up in a house where the two popular journals published by Kuiper, they wrote, and another one was read. He grew up with the whole story and he was, uh, as a youngster, confronted with the theologians who wanted to base the free university on the reformed principles, which they suggested should be deduced from scriptures. Mm -hmm. And was a student in law and he didn't find too much to guide him as reformed principles. Mm -hmm. So he was initially a bit uh, uh, antithetic and uh, not too much uh, inclined to follow that path. But then when he started to work at the uh, Kuiper Foundation, uh, the then Prime Minister elected him to become uh, the research person for the Anti-Revolutionary Party. And that was an important role he played, and he published, he established the journal, Anti-Revolutionary Staatkunde, Anti-Revolutionary Political Kunde Practice. Mm -hmm. and uh, in doing that, he, he said that he wanted to have 50% of his time off. He has a new philosophical conception, he wants to work it out. Mm he -hmm. was adamant and they granted it to him. It mm -hmm. was interesting in itself. And he wrote his first extensive series of articles about the struggle for uh, Christian politics. Mm -hmm. And it already appeared as one of the volumes in the collected works of Duevia. So, uh, in, then in 21, uh, 26, he held his inaugural address about the significance of the law idea for the discipline of jurisprudence or, or law. And that was an illustration of his erudition at the time. It was just immense and impressive. Uh -huh. And uh, and at the same time started to work and collaborate with him. They had a lot of discussions. And Dweviet uh, was walking in the dunes when the idea of sphere sovereign moral aspects cohering with each other dawned upon him. And uh, that took him back and inspired him to develop his theory of the moral aspects and so forth. Uh, Vollenhoven was uh, initially still a little bit in the, as well in the grip of Kantian uh, remnants in his thought. He said, uh, for, for example, that Christian philosophy, while distinguishing between moral normativity and <laughs> causality, must necessarily be dualistic. <laughs> I've quoted him in my master's degree saying this. Mm -hmm. But he, and he did his PhD on uh, the philosophy of mathematics. Mm -hmm. which was also interesting, but he, he and Weber never came to terms with the modern, modern mathematics. They rejected to the actual infinite, but that's mm -hmm. a different story. Another subject. But nevertheless, uh, Follenhoven and Weber agreed to 
keep to get to stay together and not to criticize each other in public. Uh-huh. And they kept that up until the late 60s. Uh-huh. And then for the first time, Follow and said he has a different idea of time. <laughs> right. But their essential idea of, of, of aspects of reality that remained, that remained yeah. the, the intact, but they had somewhat different ideas of time. And in another segment, we'll get to the Doiverd's uh, conception of time. And I think what will be interesting as well is to get a couple of your, uh, in, a, in a later segment, to talk a little bit about um, your own meeting with Doiverd and um, you're also your meeting with Volenhoven. I think uh, viewers would enjoy that. Perhaps I can just mention to anyone interested that uh, David's philosophy uh, received a general respect mm-hmm. and he was praised by people coming from different tra- traditions, even non-Christian traditions. Mm-hmm. So his, con- his scholarship and his, the originality of his philosophical uh, non-reductionist ontology was to such an extent appreciated that you find, found a statement such as the following. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one I've, I've Pin down a few for you. Uh, G. E. Langemeyer, he was the former Attorney General of the Dutch Appeal Court and former Chairman of the Royal Dutch Academy of Sciences. And he said in 1965 that David is the most original philosopher Holland has produced, even Spinoza not accepted. Mm-hmm. And then Giorgio Del Vecchio, a well known Italian New Kantian philosopher, categorically stated that David is the most profound innovative and penetrating philosopher since Kant. And then the president of the Humanist League in the Netherlands, Paul Cloutier, professor of philosophy at the Technical University of Delft, also expresses his respect for the contribution of Dweviet in no uncertain terms when he claimed, Herman Dweviet is undoubtedly the most formidable Dutch philosopher of the 20th century. Uh-huh. As a humanist, I've always looked in my, at my own tradition in search for similar com- examples. They simply don't exist. Uh-huh. And then the equally well-known Dutch philosopher C.A. Van Pearson, at the end of his life, remarked that many books within, written within the domain of philosophy of science should not have been written had the authors familiarized themselves with Dweviet's insights. Yeah. So we see the remarkable uh, reach of his thought and impact of his uh, thought and, and exceptional gifts that, uh, that he had. Well, we'll uh, thank you, Danny. We'll return uh, later in the week to uh, discuss further uh, the developments within um, reformational philosophy. Thank you. Thank you. I would say we've got uh, two segments there. We've got, um, I think, one that takes us from the, you know, the, the beginning through the rise of philosophy, uh, and then a second segment beginning at the Reformation. Yeah. There's a natural. Uh, so I, we. I put a break on a note about that. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Danny. That was great. No, no, thank you. And we'll we'll we'll, we'll come back come back to more of this tomorrow. Yeah, sure. But, uh, if we have on average. Uh, 30 to 40 minutes yeah. in, in, in stock or in mind. Mm-hmm. We can do at least two every day. Exactly. But this one is already two. That's two already.